Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim picks up our study from the book of Genesis as we take a look at a story from the life of Isaac and ask ourselves, what kind of God is God anyway? As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tim. Um, It's good to be back. I've been gone for a little bit in Israel, and so it's good to be back with you all. Uh, We, um, by the way, if you have a Bible, Genesis 22, that's where we're going to be. But uh, yeah, we had an incredible trip. I know many of you were praying for us, and you let me know that, and following the blog, and all those things. And so thank you for doing that. Um, We had 51 of us, uh, and uh, 12 days on the ground, and just uh, got to see... I was uh, making sure I took a note of every spot in the Bible um, that we had been to, and we covered almost the entire Bible in, in 12 days. And so it was a lot. Somebody, somebody said it was like drinking from a fire hose, and uh, that's, that, that feels about right. Um, that was, that was uh, for 12 days, and then after that, uh, my buddy and I, who I lead the trip with, Jeremy Cruz, he's at Fairhaven, uh, we rented this little car. And, uh, and we, left, we dropped the group off at the airport, and then we got the smallest car possible. It should be illegally small to drive around in the mountains in a foreign country. But we got this car, and uh, we spent five days uh, looking at some sites for what hopefully someday will be a second timers trip. And so um, it was a lot of additional work, but uh, got to see some really cool things. And, uh, and yet, I missed you all. It's good to be back. Um, again, thank you for your prayers uh, we've got, we got some work to do today, uh, and so, uh, I'm, and I'm ready for it, uh, by the way. I feel like the Israel experience is you're, you're on your toes, like, the entire time teaching, and, and so I'm in full teacher mode this morning. I hope, I hope you're ready for teacher mode. Um, we'll do our best. I, got, I could talk about the passage we're going to look at this morning for hours, and so um, we'll just go until we're out of time, and then we'll be done. But uh, this one is one of my favorite passages to teach on. Uh, mostly because I think this is one of the stories, probably top five stories in our Bible that is most troubling and I think most misunderstood and often uh, most, uh, maybe even most abused stories in the Bible. Here's my warning in the front end. Uh, This particular story um, that we're going to look at this morning, Genesis 22, uh, is one of the more troubling stories. It's caused a ton of damage for many people, Uh, many Many good people have shown up to churches or maybe uh, they found themselves sitting in a hotel and somebody named Gideon left their Bible and so they've opened it up and uh, they're paging through the Bible and they get to Genesis 22 and they're reading through Genesis 22. This may have been your experience. And uh, all of a sudden you encounter the story in which God says to a man, Abraham, to sacrifice his son and you're finding yourself thinking, is, is this what God is like? Is God, because um, that can keep you up at night. Like if this is who God is, that, that kind of message can keep you up at night. Uh, and uh, maybe you've, you've even heard some messages or sermons that um, were not careful. And uh, this particular text can be one of the most problematic texts to do some pretty damaging spiritually uh, abusive, whether it's not intentionally abusive, it often is abusive, kind of spiritually damaging uh, messaging, all coming from this passage. Some of us are stuck in our faith because we heard something said about this particular passage. Again, I think it's top five in the Bible. Um, most troubling. 
uh, they're, the, this one's tied to all kinds of lies about who God is. The lie that, that God is out to get you. Um, the lie that uh, the reason something bad is happening in your life is because you don't have enough faith. Or God is punishing you. Or you didn't pray hard enough. And so that's why this particular bad thing is happening. Uh, the, there are people who have experienced significant pain and then they sat down with a story and realized, well, maybe it's just because I haven't sacrificed enough for God. And so God's actually angry with me. Um, or the illness is somehow it's my fault. Um, or the, you find yourself walking in the hospital with somebody you love and thinking, Did I, is this because I, wasn't, I didn't go to church enough or I didn't give enough money in the church or I didn't pray hard enough? Uh, is the reason we lost a child um, through a miscarriage because we, we didn't do it right and God's mad at us? Or is the reason we can't conceive because somehow we don't have enough faith and we didn't pray hard enough? All the lies that kind of get attached to uh, this particular story. And what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through the story with you all. It's a story that we've We've worked at a little bit here in the past, and so hopefully some of this is familiar. Again, it's one of my favorite to teach on. Um, but just be really clear, if you tune me out the rest of the message, all those are lies, okay? All of them, every single one of them. In fact, I think what you'll see, if I can communicate this clearly, is that Jesus will actually use that particular lie that gets attached to the story, and he'll say, you want to know the, the picture of hell? It's that lie. Stay with me, but um, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, this particular story uh, is about a man named Abraham, and he has arrived, just for some backdrop, we've been working chapter by chapter through Genesis. Um, Abraham has arrived in a land known as Canaan. Canaan will eventually become Israel at this time. It's known as Canaan because the Canaanites are living there. And God says to him, I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you children. Land and children. That's the promise. And Abraham says, okay, I'll leave. And now it's been 20 years, and there's still no land, and there's no children. He's 90-some years old, and there is no land, and there's no children. Uh, then you get to Genesis 21, and God, God uh, through, to Abraham and Sarah, they, um, they are given their firstborn child uh, together, a guy by the name of Isaac. Um, he's like, they're in like their 90s. Can you, imagine, can you imagine changing diapers in your 90s? Just think about that. It's like one for you, one for... I'm so sorry. Uh, like, they're old. They're very old. Uh, that's Genesis 21. Uh, Genesis 22, then, where we pick up our story, uh, is uh, that about those two, Abraham and Isaac, we think now about 15 years additionally has passed. So Isaac's probably somewhere around 15. Um, we're not told explicitly, but some of the language, he's a young teenager is the language in the text. We read this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Pause. Um, bearings first. Uh, this is the region of Moriah. Uh, this is uh, what it would have looked like at the time. Some, some, I mean, this is from ChatGPT. So this is what ChatGPT, the AI robots, think it would have looked like at the time of Abraham. Here's what it looks like today. A little hard to see. It's a big city today, so it's a little harder to see it. Um, um, but it, at that time, it was just a mountain. There's, there's not many people there. Some, maybe some Canaanites, um, but it's just a mountain. So get our bearings. Uh, and God says, I want you to go to that mountain, and I want you to take your son, and I want you to sacrifice your son. That's problematic. That should cause your stomach to turn a bit. If you're feeling anger, that's what God wants you to feel in this moment, I think. Let's keep reading. 
Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. You get the tenderness of a father, by the way, right? Like you give, like you carry the dangerous things, and he gives his son the wood. Um, also, uh, just listen to the story through your Christian lens of Christ. Three days, he carries, the son carries the wood. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, and and I imagine he answers with tears, "Um, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Um, Now uh, we'll stop the story there. Uh, This one has uh, always been a hard story for me. Growing up, this was a hard story for me to hear. Uh, My assumption is if this is, if you're newer with us and maybe didn't hear this taught before, uh, this is a hard story. This is a, a really hard story. In seminary, I had a professor, and one of the assignments in seminary was, uh, I want you to write about the hardest story in the Bible for you. I want you to write an essay and do some research on that particular story. And of all the stories in the Bible, there's, there's several that are troubling, uh, especially if you're reading them without context. They can be troubling. But of all the stories in the Bible, for me, this was the one I chose. Uh, it just felt, maybe you're thinking, like, this is so primitive. It's so barbaric. God says, sacrifice your son. Does this bother anyone else? Like, what, like, this, is, um, this, is, this is disgusting. Now, typically I've heard this passage and it gets interpreted um, one of two ways. Nine out of 10 times the way we interpret this passage is we will turn the whole story into a metaphor, right? The whole thing becomes, I don't want to deal with what it actually says. So we turn it into a metaphor and we talk about, you know, what are your altars and what is God calling you to sacrifice, I think I've shared this here before, but I remember going uh, to a church and I was leading a college group at the time and uh, these college students were going through some stuff. We, we were working through some faith stuff and I, we had a, a gal in our group who was inflicting self-harm on her body and we had someone else in our group who was struggling with anorexia and bulimia and they were just really struggling. And we, we came to church together and uh, the sermon that day was on this passage and at some point in the sermon, the pastor said, you know, like, what are you, what are you struggling? What, do you, what is God asking you to sacrifice? What's, what's the altar for you? And then he shared how his issue and his temptation were, and then the screen flit, flashed, and it was a picture of loaded nachos. And he said, this is my temptation, like nachos. Uh, that's what God's asking me to give up. What's God asking you to give up? And 
I get it. Like, it's a hard story. So I, I actually appreciate metaphor to the second one we'll talk about. But, but this is not, Abraham, I need you to sacrifice nachos. This is, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to take a knife, and I want you to take some wood, and I want you to lay the wood out on, a, uh, on an altar, and then I want you to take the knife, and I want you to kill your son, and then I want you to place him on the altar and then light him on fire. That's messed up. It's messed up. So I understand why we would just say, okay, well, let's just turn it into a metaphor. Then we don't have to deal with the messed upness. I actually think that's a better, I don't like that way of reading the Bible, but I think it's better than the second way I've often heard this message, this message taught. Um, again, nine out of 10 times, we, we turn it into a metaphor. Every once in a while, uh, something, someone comes along and does something with this passage that is far more dangerous. Essentially, they'll say something along the lines of, this is just who God is. And it's on us to accept God on his terms. You don't get to determine who God is. You just need to accept God's on, God on his terms. He needs to know if Abraham has what it takes. He's going to be the father of his people. God needs to know if he can do it. But if God is God, which I know is a weird sentence, God is God, but go with me. If God is God, doesn't God already know that Abraham has what it takes? Doesn't God already know this? Why the why the weird test? That's the language in the passage. Why the weird test? If God already knows that Abraham's going to do it, why does he put him through what will become, as you'll see next week, a, a traumatic moment in his family's life? It'll be hard to put the pieces back together after this one. Why go through it all? So if, if it's not because, well, God needs to see if Abraham can do it, the only other reason would be God must get some kind of weird kick out of this. That's even more unsettling. That somehow God enjoys to watch suffering of people. Somehow God must enjoy this moment and must enjoy watching Abraham squirm to prove that he loves him. This, if a parent in our world did this, we would call that parent abusive. If a parent only chose to show love, if their son did some, some ridiculous act of, uh, look, at, look at me, dad, we would say that that dad is not a good dad. And yet for many people, they, they've been told that this is who God is. And so no wonder a whole lot of us have this mental image of God is like a grumpy old man on a cloud sitting in paradise while we all here just kind of go through chemo treatments and uh, financial hardship and uh, anxiety and uh, bullying and all the things we go to. And God's sitting in a cloud somewhere just kind of enjoying it. And uh, then the best we can do is just like make sure we're doing it right so that someday we can go up to heaven and then we'll stand in line where Peter's like the bouncer and uh, maybe Peter will let us in. Uh, that, that, that again becomes the, 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 the read of this story. But I would argue that this story is, is exactly the opposite point. It's, God's trying to make exactly the opposite point. Uh, this feels very out of character for the God that Jesus reveals to us. Would you agree with this? Very out of character for the God Jesus reveals to us. Anytime you read a passage and it feels really out of character for the God Jesus reveals to us. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't go look in other places, look to me. I am the way, the truth, and life. Okay, so Jesus says, pay attention to me, and that's who God is. Everything before is a shadow. Pay attention to me. If this is out of character for God, we have to ask deeper questions. What is the story trying to communicate? But I would argue it's not just out of character for God. I would say that this story is also out of character for Abraham. Abraham, if you notice in the story, Abraham... Uh, he doesn't even put up a fight when God says, kill your son. 
That's out of character for Abraham. Four chapters earlier, uh, we read a story about Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a fun story to read in front of you all. Um, we read a story about Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and we read this moment in which Abraham, got, like God has revealed he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin that's come before him. They're abusing people. There's lots going on there. Uh, and and uh, most of them are complete strangers to Abraham. Other than his nephew Lot and in Lot's family, the rest of them are strangers. But do you remember how Abraham responds to God when God says, I'm going to destroy the cities? I'll read it for you. Uh, Genesis 18, 24. Abraham says to God, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham has no issue telling God, like, how dare you? This is not who you are, God. That Abraham, uh, the word we learned in Israel this week, uh, chutzpah. He's got chutzpah. He's got a passion to him. He's willing to stand uh, up against uh, even God and say, God, this is our contract. Remember, this is who we are. This is our covenant. Uh, and if you keep reading, he says, okay, what about 50? What if there's 50? What if there's 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? God, what if there are 10 righteous people? Will you destroy the whole city if there are 10 righteous people? Here's my question. Abraham is willing to go face-to-face -face with God, toe-to-toe -to -toe with God, uh, over a group of complete strangers. Why is it that when God says, sacrifice your son, why does he not even put up a fight? He just seems to say, okay. Almost as though he's expecting God to demand he sacrifice his son. It's almost as though Abraham just assumes this is what I have to do. And I would argue that's exactly, most likely, what's going, to, like, what's going on in the story. He doesn't put up a fight. He doesn't argue. He doesn't, he doesn't even raise the question because it seems as though Abraham believes this is exactly what I have to do. Why? Okay, to get at that, uh, we need to do a little bit of geography. This is where I... Oh, yeah. Every time I come back for Israel, from Israel, I got to remember that you not, weren't all there. So I got to like try to not nerd out on things that it's hard to do with the screen. But let me try to walk through where we are uh, in the text. Genesis 21 uh, takes place in a city called Beersheba. Beersheba. Um, and, or as, uh, well, I won't, never mind. I'll keep the joke to myself. Uh, Beer, <laughs> Beersheba. Uh, Abraham is here and he is told to travel to uh, another region, the region of Moriah, the region of Moriah. Now, I showed you a picture of it earlier. Some of you recognize the city that is currently Moriah. What city sits on Mount Moriah now? Jerusalem. So he's told to go there to Jerusalem. Uh, Mount Moriah eventually becomes Jerusalem. Uh, 1,200 years after the story, uh, a king named Solomon, and uh, you can read the story in 2 Chronicles 3, God tells Solomon to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So this spot, by the way, I find that, I find it kind of, I, no, not kind of, I find it absolutely beautiful that the same spot that God would say, don't sacrifice your son, will be the very same city that a few thousand years later, um, we, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave up his only son. Same exact, like, soil. I find that moving. 
Um, but this place becomes Jerusalem. Uh, now, a, a little more geography. Uh, uh, here's Jerusalem. Let me see the next map. Let me show you a picture of Jerusalem. Uh, so Jerusalem is... Let me try to give you the lay of the land. Uh, so over on the east side of Jerusalem is a mountain range known as the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by two mountain ranges. On the east side is the Mount of Olives. On the west side of Jerusalem is Mount Zion, or often referred to simply as the Western Hills. Um, the Western Hills. Behind them, there are some mountains. Um, below them are some mountains, but those two mountain ranges are a big deal in the story. Uh, you have the Temple Mount here, uh, Mount of Olives. Uh, then you have two valleys one is known as the Kidron Valley, and the other is known as the Hinnom Valley. I'll leave that picture up. Um, I was trying to explain, like, how do you, so much of our Bible, by the way, will make sense if you, if you understand Jerusalem, and it's really hard to explain Jerusalem without being in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one of those cities where, it's an old city, it kind of reminds me of Aladdin every time I go there, like tight walls, shop vendors. Um, it's hard to explain uh, Jerusalem without being in Jerusalem. So I'm going to try something I, I've not tried to do before. Um, but so it may not work. I may just confuse you more. I'm so sorry if I do. But let's let's try a little bit of an experiment um, because Jerusalem is a little bit laid out like this room. Okay, so if you imagine you are Jerusalem, so this middle section is Jerusalem, uh, and by the way, if we're Jerusalem, the temple. I'm going to come down. Hopefully the mic works. Uh, the temple is going to be somewhere in here. Okay, so this is the temple somewhere here. Uh, Barb is sitting in the Holy of Holies. <laughs> this is Jerusalem. Okay, uh, then you've got two mountain ranges on the sides. Uh, the, this one is, so let's imagine the back of the room is the north. This is the south. This is the east. This is the west. This is the Mount of Olives. And over here you have the Western Hills or Mount Zion. Can I ask you to do something? Could you please stand for me? Just the outsides. Not everybody in the middle. Jerusalem, stay seated. Okay. Jerusalem, let's get the picture, Jerusalem sits in a bowl. If you're in Jerusalem and you look around, every, every mountain on the side of it's higher than Jerusalem. It's really bad strategic land if you're trying to build a city that's defendable. Uh, the psalmist David will write, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, he realizes, I look around, I'm vulnerable. I'm sitting in a bowl. And uh, you don't, the, God put his city in a spot where his people would need to be reminded that they have to trust in him. You may have a seat. Thank you. Uh, so uh, Mount of Olives, um, by the way, uh, Jesus will, on, the, on Palm Sunday, he comes down the Mount of Olives. Remember this story? It's known as the Mount of Olives because uh, there's olive trees. Uh, at the base of the Mount of Olives, so like the, these two rows, the base of the Mount of Olives is a, uh, is a we found a lot of olive presses. Um, uh, the word, by the way, the word olive press, the word olive uh, is the word shemanim, and press is the word got. You say olive press in Hebrew as got shemanim, or in English we say Gethsemane. So Jesus comes down, and then uh, the night he's going to be betrayed, he's here somewhere praying yeah, that God would take the cup. By the way, the language is that his sweat is being, he's being pressed and his sweat is coming out like blood. Do you see the picture? In the olive press, Jesus is being squeezed. He comes down, crosses the Kidron Valley. Um, this is a lot like the Kidron Valley. Okay, so it's, it's lower, uh, but you make your way, it actually runs at an angle, just like this room. It kind of comes in at an angle and kind of narrows to the south of Jerusalem, into what was David's city over here. Um, 
Kidron Valley. Then he makes his way into the temple and is like in this area, by Barb, in this area. Now, uh, on the other side, you've got the, um, so you've got over here, your Mount Zion. This is throughout the Bible. Uh, Mount Zion's mentioned a lot in the Psalms. Uh, Mount Zion is uh, often a stand-in for God's mountain in the Psalms. Look up Mount Zion. Uh, Lauren Hill wrote a song about Zion. No, no Lauren Hill fans. Okay, fair enough. Uh, now, uh, the valley here is known as the Hinnom Valley. Okay, so this is the Hinnom Valley. Now, what's interesting about the two valleys, it kind of is kind of laid out like our room. The Hinnom Valley will wrap around and kind of come to the front of the, right before the city of David, come before it, and then starting about right here, it kind of merges to this valley, the Kidron Valley. You follow? Kind of see the picture? Why do I tell you all that? Uh, great question. <laughs> Who cares? Uh, David is coming, or David, Abraham is coming from Beersheba, which is like over here, okay? So he's coming from the southwest, and he's heading toward Jerusalem. God says, take your, by the way, he's coming from Beersheba. He's got firewood. If you've been to Beersheba, it's, it's desert. There's no wood, but he takes them out. Jerusalem's got a lot of wood. You got wood. He's got no firewood. It, but somehow he finds the firewood in Beersheba. There's a lot of theories about why he spends time doing that. Won't bore you. But he makes his way to Jerusalem, meaning that he has to pass through which valley before he climbs the hill? The Hinnom Valley. I tell you all of the long lecture about the layout of the room to get you that one point, so hopefully you remember it. He has to pass through the Hinnom Valley. Why does that detail matter? Because the Hinnom Valley, there's something going on in Abram's day that absolutely plays into our story in Genesis 22. 100% plays into it. And by the way, this is not the first time he's passed through this valley. Remember earlier in the story, God doesn't walk through the land. He's familiar with what's going on in this valley. But there's something happening in the Hinnom Valley that, that Abraham knows. So when God says, I need you to go to the region of Moriah, and sac he doesn't put up a fight because he knows what's happening in the Hinnom Valley. What's happening in the Hinnom Valley? Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, Jeremiah 32, 35, the prophet Jeremiah will tell us, Something pretty ugly is happening in that valley. The prophet says this. He says, They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, uh, which later gets shortened to the valley of Hinnom, uh, to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded them, nor did it enter my mind, that they should do such a detestable thing so that so, and so make Judah sin. So the prophet Jeremiah tells us that what's happening in this valley is detest God says it's detestable. I would never ask them to do this thing. But there are people that are sacrificing their children to a god, a Baal. Um, Baal is like a stand-in word for the gods of, Can of the Canaanites. To a god that they refer to as Molech or Molech. Uh, now, we found statues of Molech. Um, often, uh, stat the, like, it's something like this. And sometimes it, he's got a blazing fire in his mouth. Sometimes he's got a blazing fire in his chest. Often he has uh, his hands. They found one in Megiddo, for those who were in Israel. They found a statue of uh, Molech in Megiddo with his hands open like this. And what you would do um, is you would place your firstborn son onto the hands of Molech, and that baby would roll down and into the fire. 
The, this isn't the only reference to Melech. 2 Kings 23.10 says this. Um, he, that is uh, Josiah, the king, desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so that no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. Uh, Leviticus 18.21 says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Uh, Leviticus 20 um, goes into a whole elaborate, like, if you dare do this practice, here's what you need, you need to be cast out of the camp. If you still refuse to, like, you're going you're gonna to make the sacrifice. God has a whole list of punishments for what's going to happen to you. We do not sacrifice our children to Molech. We don't do this. You following me? Why, now, why would anyone ever think to sacrifice their child? Why? The, in the ancient world, this is pretty common, actually. It's a pretty common practice that you would sacrifice a child. How does it become a common practice? They, the, the Baals, they looked around and said, the Baals are responsible for all that is good, all that is green, all that is growing, all the food. is somehow a gift of the Baals. They're the fertility gods. Uh, Molech, in particular, gets associated with the moon. Kind of like, uh, remember Nana from, from Mesopotamia? The god Abraham kind of comes out of that world. Uh, Molech is very similar. Um, and they understood that every 30 days, the moon does a cycle. And they also observed that as the moon cycles, uh, that moon cycle is somehow connected to, uh, to her cycle. And somehow that, those are connected. And then they noticed that if... Um, like, like she has life growing in her. Um, but if, if something goes wrong, it's really... It's really like you, it's, uh, life is really precious and life is really vulnerable and it, it's really easy to lose life. But what they noticed was if there's life growing in you, they said, well, that must be a gift of that thing. That the thing in the sky, that moon that passes, that must be a gift of this thing. And the crops, they grow this year because somehow it's connected to the, to the moon and the seasons are connected to the moon and they go through these cycles. And so uh, somehow if, if we don't get crops this year, that thing must be mad at you. Molech must be mad at you. You must not have been doing it right. So uh, at first it starts with a, okay, let's, uh, let's take an altar and uh, let's, let's let Molech know that we are really grateful for what Molech has done. And so we will take some of, our, some of our crops this year and we'll place them on the altar and say, thank you, Molech, for giving us food. And, uh, but what happens if you've offered a sacrifice to Molech and it still um, doesn't rain? Okay, well, maybe, maybe Molech needs more. Maybe Molech demands a little bit more. Maybe, maybe uh, we, we're not grateful enough. So we got to offer more. Last year was crops. This year we'll offer a bull. And we'll kill this bull and we'll say, thank you, Molech, please send rain. But what happens if you offered your crops, then you offered a bull and uh, it still doesn't rain? Well, we got to offer more. Uh, so maybe, um, yeah, 10% was, a, that was hard. But what if we, we got to go 20%. God needs to know, Molech needs to know that we're passionate. So you offer two bowls, some crops. But what happens if it still doesn't rain? There are stories in your Bible um, and records from history that uh, there were people that said, okay, what can we give Molech um, to prove that we like, we understand you've given us this gift. What can we give to the gods, to the Baals? There are stories in your Bible of people cutting their own bodies to try to show Molech how faithful they are to Molech, to, to the Baals. You know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. 
Uh, let me refresh your memory. Um, this is 1 Kings 18. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Maybe he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he must be awakened. Kind of like the taunting. Uh, So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears. And then this phrase. As was their custom until their blood flowed. As was their custom But what happens if even after all of this, it's still not raining? What's the most precious thing to you? What do you love more than anything? Maybe in order to protect my whole family, our whole village, we maybe Molech needs to see that we really, really understand that he's angry. We got to get him on our side. We offer up our firstborn son. It's the most precious thing we can think of. But to spare everyone's life, uh, this was not just a practice in Cana. In Cana. This, was a practice, um, this was a practice throughout Mesopotamia, where Abraham comes out of. We have found this practice amongst the Egyptians. We have found this practice in uh, kind of Native America. We found this practice, this idea that the gods have to be satisfied, that their anger has to be appeased, that we've done something wrong, and if we don't do the right dances, as was their custom, uh, God's not going to be happy with us. We have found this practice Everywhere. Why does Abram not put up a fight? Perhaps he just expects that this is where it's going to go. God gave him a son. This is just what all the gods demanded. I got to give up my son. He'll give me more. He promised me more, but I need to show him that I'm, I'm afraid. I need to show them I understand who he is. Here's a question, though, that I think for me unlocks the story. Is the primary point of this particular test, we're told it's a test, is the primary point of the test for God to discover something about Abraham's character or is the point of the test for Abraham to understand something about who this God is, something about God's character? Again, I propose to you that God doesn't need to learn anything about who Abraham is. He's God. He, he knows everything about Abraham. He doesn't need to learn anything about Abraham's character. But there is something fundamental that Abraham has to learn about God. And that is, stop it. No. I will not ask that of you. I will not make you do that. Stop it. This, this, this whole, no, I'm not like that. Once again, listen to the prophet Jeremiah. They built high places in, for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their daughters and so, their sons and daughters to Molech, though I never commanded it, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and make Judah sin. God says, I wouldn't do this. This is not who I am. Now, just to show you how, uh, how significant of um, an issue this is to uh, the scriptures and how, um, how big of a deal that we catch this point uh, this particular um, word, uh, or this valley of, of Hinnom, you've heard of this valley before, whether you're aware of it or not, you've heard of this valley. Um, okay, follow this. Uh, the, the Old Testament is written in the Hebrew language, predominantly. A little bit of Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew. The New Testament is written in the Greek language. Uh, in the Greek, the word for valley is the word g. g. Uh, the word for valley is the word g. Uh, in uh, the, word for, the word for 
Hinnom, so the valley of Hinnom is the word, uh, gets shortened to Henna. Gehenna. You know from your Bible that the word Gehenna, some of you know this, is a Greek word that we have always translated in your Bible as the word. I know we're not allowed to say this as kids, but you can say it in church. We're using it in context. Uh, Hell. It's the word for hell. Uh, When Jesus is talking about hell, every time, other than the title, he refers to it as Hades at one point, which sometimes gets translated hell. But the rest of the time, every time Jesus mentions hell, it's the word Gehenna. It's the word Gehenna. Jesus points to what is happening here. By the way, in the time between uh, Elijah and Jesus, this valley gets turned into a city dump because they understand that God hates the practice of sacrificing children. And, and so when Jesus uses the word hell, every single time it's Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. It would be better for you to throw yourself in the valley of Hinnom than it is to continue to lust, he would say. Um, it would be better for you, 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 uh, you lay these heavy loads on people, you Pharisees, um, and you make them twice the sons, of, sons and daughters of Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. This becomes the picture of all that is wrong, of all that is twisted, of all that is ugly, of everything that's anti-God, or we would say maybe anti-Christ. It's, it's like God needs to bring Abraham here to say, look down in the valley. I need you to see the valley. Hear the cries of the children. Look at the pain in the parents' eyes. Do you see it? He marches them up the mountains so he can look down, I think. See it? I would never do this. I would never do this. You have to understand. I'll provide. I'll provide for you. You do not have to prove something. to. I will provide for you. Uh, now, um... Some of you are thinking, but why doesn't God just tell Abraham that? Why does he make him do all this? It's pretty traumatic. Why make him do all this? Why not just say, Abraham, I'm not like that? Uh, why not just, just tell them that? And uh, I would maybe suggest to you that the reason we find this particular passage so barbaric is because this passage exists. Up until this moment, uh, in history, and in still in many places that have not been touched by the message of Christ, child sacrifice wasn't viewed as barbaric. It was viewed as common. 4,000 years ago, in the land of Canaan, this was viewed as common. And God says, I need you to stop it. If you need proof that your sins are forgiven, I get it. Like, you don't know for sure. How do I know my, my sins are forgiven? Um, it didn't rain this year. How do I know God's not angry? Okay, fine. Give me a bull or a dove or a lamb, or whatever it is. We'll deal with that later. Um, but fine, but do not ever give me the, your, your child. I would never ask that of you. Why doesn't God just tell Abraham that? I think he needs this moment to stick because culture around him has so ingrained a message in him. He, if he just said it, it'd be like, yeah, but I don't know for sure. I think he needs to put Abraham through this so that this, to wake Abraham and everyone who would follow Abraham up, that this is not who our God is. This, this theology is absolutely toxic. Okay, come home to me. Uh, this is um, toxic then, but I think it's still something that many people believe. Uh, many of us have caught theologies about God. Um, theology, big fancy word that just means words about God. We have had words about God spoken about God that have got us to believe some really toxic things about who our God is. That he is vindictive, that he is cruel, 
that he's holding out on you, um, that if you didn't do it right, that you're not going to get blessed or whatever language we would use. I would wager that our world is not all that different than Abraham's. Every week, we still have people in our world who go to their holy place. Maybe not at the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Uh, it could be a church or a synagogue or a mosque, a temple. Uh, every week, we have people who go to their church because they believe God is against them. And if they only do the right thing, if I just show up, I get my, I, there was a joke in, at Hope College, we'd be like, yeah, we get points, in, points for heaven by showing up to chapel today. There's a lot of people that believe in the point system, that if I just show up and I say the right prayers, if I do something, I can win back the approval of God. I feel like God's against me if I show up and do the right thing. Every week there are people that show up to places like this. They're holy places. And they, they do so because they think that somehow God is against them, that somehow God is detached. And unless they show up here, God is not going to listen. He's got his fingers in his ears. He's not listening to you. They're... There are still people in our world who cut themselves. We, we see it in Elijah's day and we say, how barbaric, but there are still people in our world who cut themselves because they're not confident that they're loved. That still happens. This story is trying to wake us up. And there are people who still walk through the doors of church. Maybe this has been your experience. You walk, maybe today you walk through the doors of the church wondering whether or not you actually um, belong, whether you're good enough. Is God angry with me? Are these people angry with me? Am I good enough? Is God just sitting on a, lightning, like on a cloud with a lightning bolt just waiting to strike me down? I'm not exaggerating when I say that, to quote Jesus, that theology is from the pit of hell and it has no place in the same messaging as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any of it. We all go through heartbreak, all of us. Some of you, uh, if I'm in like elementary school of suffering, some of you have your PhDs. You've gone through a lot. Uh, and uh, in those moments, we need to be reminded that it's not God who caused that. Like we have an enemy who's come to kill, steal, and destroy, but it's not God. God's not angry with you. Uh, your miscarriage is not, uh, it's not because God's trying to prove a punishment to you. Your struggles with, um, with infertility or childbearing, like it's not because somehow you didn't do it right. Uh, the words that were spoken to you in the fifth grade by some kid on the bus that he probably completely forgot about it, but you carry those words in you and you still, every time you look in the mirror, you think, I'm, t- I'm too fat, I'm too ugly. That's not God's messaging about who you are. Um, the, the, those moments where you hold your loved one and you know, like, okay, this is, we're probably not gonna, this disease is probably, we're not gonna beat it. Um, not this side of heaven, we're not gonna beat this. It's not because you didn't do it good enough. It's not because this is God punishing you. That's Moloch. That's what they believed about God. It's not who our God is. Uh, lo- your loneliness, your anxiety, your, your broken heart. Our theology matters, um, how we think about God matters, and I think we need to reclaim this ancient story um, from those who have twisted it and perverted it and have made it into some fear-mongering, ugly, distorted, again, to quote Jesus, from the pit of hell, uh, abusive, uh, toxic theology. We, he's good. You can trust him. You can trust him. He's good. Um, uh, P.S., 
by, uh, by the time uh, of Jesus, the rabbis would use a specific methodology to, to, to kind of teach their students. Lots of different uh, tools and, and tricks. One of them is known as the principle of first mention. A principle of first mention said, uh, if we're trying to help define what a word means or a picture means, what's the first mention of that word in the Bible? And if we can go back to that first mention of the word in the Bible, we can uh, help explain what it truly means later. And so um, there's lots of examples. But in this passage, you actually have the first mention of a word in our Bible, and it's the word love. Uh, in Genesis 22.2, this is the very first mention of the word love in the Bible. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. One of Jesus' disciples, a kid named John, uh, he's listening carefully. And he recognizes that somehow in Jesus, um, this version of love, this picture of love, like he is... What was a, a mystery before, Jesus has revealed what the heart of our Father is. And John will say, in his first mention of the word love, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's almost exactly the same exact language. You want to know what love looks like. Uh, uh, PPS. <laughs> um, uh, rabbi noticed, rabbis also noticed that Abraham, um, when Isaac asked him, where's the lamb for the offering? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. And then later in the story, we read that it's not a lamb who's stuck in the thicket, but a ram, two totally different words. One is the word say in Hebrew. One is the word ail, two totally different words. So for generation after generation, the rabbis ask, well, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Um, God gave a ram, but God says, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? How does John, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, how does he describe who Jesus is? Look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That Lamb will uh, come down the Mount of Olives. He'll do work against the Sadducees and Pharisees and religious leaders, come back to the Garden of Gethsemane. God, take the cup from me, take the cup from me. They'll bring him to the Antonia Fortress, kind of right where you're sitting down, and uh, they will arrest him, and they'll try him in a highly illegal trial. <clears throat> then they'll make him carry his cross down a path we call today the Via Dolorosa. Winds through the streets, where they'll bring him outside the city gate, where he'll be crucified, like right here, in the Valley of Hinnom. That moves me. Uh, P-P-P-S. Uh, the passage ends with, uh, read the story, the passage ends that says, Abraham and the servants go back to Beersheba. Um, but it doesn't mention anything about Isaac. Isaac doesn't go back to Beersheba. In fact, Isaac goes somewhere very different. This moment is going to settle into some significant trauma in the life of Isaac. And we'll pick up the story there next week. Um, but would you say a word of prayer with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, set us free from words that were spoken about you that are not who you've revealed yourself to be. Lord, help, help us to see once again that you are good, that you are loving. Lord, that you are um, so willing to show how good you are and loving you are that you offered your own life on our behalf. Lord, help us to see this. Help us to not just see it in our, with our eyes or see it in our minds. Uh, the the deepest, darkest sins we've carried in us. Lord, help us, 
Help us to, Lord, would your light expose those lies so that we can be set free to worship you for who you are. Um, Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Would you please stand? As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.